From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, August 28th. Uh, we're back on the Macrocast. This is Tony Prado coming to you from Western Pennsylvania this week. John Fagan. Uh, John, where are you? I'm back in D.C. Back in the D.C. area. Uh, our, our other regular pro markets policy partners, uh, Brendan Walsh is driving somewhere. So he's not with us today. He's still, you know, in the flotsam and jetsam of summer family moving vacation, but we do have, uh, two of our, you know, HPS colleagues, um, uh, Michael Steele, who was with us, uh, last week for convention review, uh, and Brian DeAngelis, uh, 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 with us today as well. We're going to get, um, you know, a Republican Democratic view on uh, the, you know, the second week of convention week. Um, you know, maybe we can get sleep next week. Uh, this week, it was no sleep on the East Coast because the staff late and watch these, um, watch these conventions. Uh, but we're going to get, we're going to get into them. Uh, but, but guys, any, any, you know, what, what was your, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down on a production uh, value uh, this week uh, before we get into in the second segment uh, in the substance, how did it look? I think thumbs up. I think it looked, whether you love Trump or hate him, this was the Trump show and he got exactly what he wanted. That was a dramatic drop backdrop uh, at the white house last night. I think this was this was the show, he, the reality TV show he wanted to show the American people. Yeah, you and I are going to debate at some point as to whether, like, you will ever see that backdrop again for a partisan political uh, event. Um, mm-hmm. But no question about it, it like looked beautiful. It did. Yeah. It did. I would say thumbs up to to both conventions. And uh, considering this was all pulled together in the last few weeks, when usually this is months if not over a year of planning i think uh both production values were pretty high yeah well so we're, we're well, let's go get more into it uh into into all of it in our uh in our second uh segment we get to talk uh politics but first john we had some big um you know some big economic news this week at least a big economic announcement with um you know the, the kansas city feds jackson hole symposium uh, you know usually it's the exclusive event out in jackson hole uh with you know beautiful b- backdrops of the grand teton mountain chain uh back there and lots of fly fishing and casual dress by uh central bank types uh this time it's all virtual uh and uh you know we got to see again chairman powell's den i guess i guess this is den his office at home in <laughs> Bethesda, Maryland, um, when, uh, but the long awaited, uh, you know, after the review and long awaited, um, uh, you know, redirect on the feds, uh, you know, how the fed thinks about, uh, inflation, uh, as a guide for monetary policy and uh, the evolution. Some people expected a revolution. I think it was more of an evolution on, on how we think about the 2% inflation target. Uh, what, what, what was your take on it? Yeah, thanks, Tony. I totally agree that it was more evolutionary than revolutionary. There was a fair amount of anticipation coming into this. The, uh, the Powell Fed has obviously uh, been very dovish, and uh, even though expectations for uh, continued you know, ultra accommodation have run pretty high over the last, uh, you know, over the last year, basically since they they abandoned their tightening cycle, 
uh, in, uh, in early 2019. Even though expectations have been for dovishness, the Powell Fed has managed to out-dove out even those uh, dovey expectations. Uh, and this was, uh, this was more kind of on target uh, rather than uh, rather than getting getting out ahead of of market expectations um, on the uh, on the accommodative side of things, you know clearly they were going to uh, shift. They'd signaled for for months now that they were going to shift their approach to inflation, and indeed uh, Chair Powell announced an average inflation, uh, basically an average inflation target, which implies much more you know permissiveness toward an overshoot to the high side than the, the previous formulation had. Now that's, it's, it's not an, an incredible, you know, an incredibly different uh, yeah. framework given the fact that Fed officials have said for, uh, you know, basically since we can remember that the 2% target is not a ceiling and that the target itself is symmetrical, which is, you know, that, that itself implies that going above it, and we have seen the Fed go, but yeah, we have seen core PCE, which is their, uh, which is their uh, chosen inflation metric, go above two percent and not be met with, a, you know, a furious, uh, you know, a furious tightening response. So a, a average was, you know, it's incrementally more dovish, incrementally more permissive toward inflation, but there was just a lot left out. One was it's average over time. Uh, and right. what what kind of time period? You know, what, right. what do you where? Are you, where are you, not, yeah, I thought, I thought to me, I thought like the, the the hard questions are the hard questions are all as they always are with these things are you know duration and magnitude and speed. You know, how quickly do you act? How big will the act be? How long do you wait? You know, over what time period? They didn't really give any indication on that at all on any of those things. Yeah, the uh, the voluble uh, uh, St. Louis Fed President Bullard came out with his viewpoint on what, you know, an overshooting, an acceptable overshooting would be about 2.5%. He indicated that he would be comfortable with uh, with core PCE, the, the, their inflation metric running around that level for some period of time. Uh, but Powell warned that, you know, excessive, he didn't define what excessive price pressures would be, but that that would be met with a, uh, a tightening response by the Fed. So it was pretty balanced. It wasn't really, a, it, it isn't an enormous uh, departure from where they were before, but incrementally uh, a, a more permissive stance. They joined yeah, that with, yeah, yeah, sorry, ahead, they, they joined it with a more nuanced view on their full employment mandate right. uh, with a focus on, a particularly a focus on lower income segments. But again, they didn't, they didn't tie that with any specific, you know, numerical metrics, for instance, uh, it was more qualitative. And at the end of the day, they didn't really tie any of these tweaked targets to policy decisions. So they didn't say we won't do, you know, we won't raise rates until XYZ. Now, there's some expectation that they might explain, you know, how they're going to hit these targets with this enhanced guidance formulation. Uh, which which some expect to come as early as September, but the minutes from the last meeting in July sort of poured some cold water on that uh, on that expectation of the September meeting as they uh, as they switched the the verbiage around the timing to you know at some point rather than you know at upcoming meetings. So and uh, and Dallas Fed President Kaplan was out uh, saying that he didn't think that enhanced guidance was the the right time for enhanced guidance was now he thought he thought it might be down the road 
So he's clearly uh, among the, the group on the FOMC that thinks that they've given enough guidance and they've tweaked their targets. Uh, so the market's reaction was pretty nuanced. You know, we saw a 10 year, we saw longer dated treasuries sell off. That's, yeah. you know, in keeping and, and tips break evens, the, the, uh, the um, market-based gauge of inflation expectations, longer on inflation expectations, like tips breaks, uh, 10 year tips break evens lifted up, commensurate with, you know, the, the more permissive stance on inflation. But the dollar rallied yesterday and gold sold off, which isn't really reflationary. We saw markets, equity markets have a bit of a nuanced reaction as well. So the, the markets are saying this is not a, you know, there are a lot of questions left to be answered. This is maybe Look, not I think they're, I think they're, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I actually would not have expected to see a whole lot of, you know, market reaction, uh, given the fact that, like, you know, just one level deeper on reading is, um, uh, you know, tells you that it's not, it's not, this is not a dramatic change. If you try to think of like functionally what it means, like there is one, you know, element of it, which is that, you know, if you saw, you know, full employment, we saw this before, if you saw full employment and growth return um, and, you know, maybe some, you know, hint of an uptick in inflation, there was an expectation by some market participants that if, you know, uh, we found ourselves with, um with inflation above 2% that the Fed would take action soon. And all they're really saying is don't expect us to take action soon. If you see that we're going to be doing some judgment about, you know, how, you know, how long have we been below our target? How's the market reacting to us being above the target? And we're going to make make some judgment, you know, do some judgment calls on that. So don't, think there's an automatic action. You know, this isn't a machine. There's an automatic action. We are willing to tolerate above uh, the, uh, the, the, the target and we really mean it. And that's to me like, that, that's the only signal, which was not like, that was, it wasn't a universal view that the Fed would um, uh, be uncomfortable above its target. But there was a certain subsegment of the of the market who did believe that they would take action to defend it, and you know we saw that with taper tantrum uh, in the past and other uh, you know more uh, you know when, when the Fed has tried to restrict and the mar- and market participants weren't ready for that. All that said, to your point on things like like forward guidance, I mean they're saying we're talking about something that <laughs> we're talking about something about some almost some fictional future. I mean I thought about it yesterday. I thought like well you know. This is true. Like I used to be able to dunk, you know, like on a, 10 foot, a real 10 foot hoop, you know, I used to be able to dunk on a 10 foot hoop, you know, and it was kind of like me coming out and saying, you know, like I'm willing to tolerate myself being able to dunk on an 11 foot hoop for some time, you know, it's like, well, I can't even dunk on a 10 foot hoop anymore, you know, so yeah, that, that, right. I can only dunk always... on a nine foot hoop now. And I'm saying like, but, but if I can dunk on an 11 foot hoop, you know, just know I'm going to do it for a while. We can't, we, we can't. We haven't been able to show that we could sustain uh, inflation above two percent uh, for any length of time for quite a long time now. So, like, willing to tolerate the thing that we haven't been able to do very well um, doesn't have all that much meaning, uh, meaning to it. And it, and also, look at the world that we're in right now. Um, you know, like we're. It's not, it's not obvious that we're going to have inflation for a very long time. And, and in fact, Chairman Powell has recently said uh, and emphasized, you know, we're not even, not only are we not thinking about inflation, we're not thinking about thinking about inflation. 
Yeah, if you're talking enhanced guidance, uh, that seems pretty enhanced to me. That's very yeah. strong guidance. And, uh, you know, what the Fed really left out was, you know, here are our new targets. And what they left out was, and here's what we're going to do differently to achieve those targets. Right. And, uh, and so without that, that, that may be coming. Uh, it, but, uh, but clearly there's, uh, you know, that, that's really where the rubber meets the road. We've seen, you know, the Bank of Japan always gets criticized for, you know, upping its inflation targets and then doing the exact same thing they've always done, which never hit the previous inflation target. So yeah. there's a signaling element here. But we expect the Fed to really uh, keep a comfy level of policy optionality here. We're in a very uncertain circumstance. There's no and, question. Uh, and, and then the question just in, in this time, is it seeming the time? Maybe this is the perfect time to do it because it's not going to be tested in the near term, right? And so there's lots of time to absorb it and talk about it. Because um, look, the economy, look, we got, we've gotten, you know, let's, let me just do a little snapshot of where we are with the economy today um, is, um, you know, we, we have a sense that growth is leveling off. Uh, we saw jobless claims again, um, you know, well above a million uh, yesterday, weekly jobless claims. Um, we're not, you know, even though I'm, I am bullish on the likelihood of fiscal support coming in September, it's not here now. And uh, right. I'm starting to see the signs of that. Um, um, you know, we got, we, you know, we've got some decent you know, uh, personal consumption numbers. Um, but yeah, that's from July. July data was right. always pretty strong. And so the August, the August readings have been a lot more nuanced. Um, and so I think you're absolutely right when you say that the inflation backdrop and the, you know, the uncertainty that we have around, you know, is, is the, is the post pandemic era going to be more inflationary or, de or disinflationary or deflationary. I think it's, it's, you can certainly make the argument that the fed is, is, uh, is taking a prudent approach uh, toward emphasizing reflation and full employment at a time when the economy is hurting. But, you know, if you're a bond trader, you got to be looking at, you know, the fed is trying to tell you that they're going to let inflation run hot and what does that mean for longer, you know, longer duration treasuries? Well, it's not great for longer duration treasuries. That's, uh, you know, supportive and propulsive of higher yields at a time when, and you mentioned the fiscal situation, Tony, at a time when the treasury is issuing a ton of bonds and the last re uh, the last um, uh, and, and their, their uh, refinancing announcement uh, extended the duration uh, incrementally of those issuances. And so it's, from from the bond trader community, there's definitely some some kind of head scratching as to whether this is from a market's perspective whether this is the right time for the Fed to do it. Economically, it's easier to make that case. Yeah, it is, and and uh, and you know, and look, I, I think you know we had the uh, uh, you know some some talk yesterday. Nick Mark Meadows, uh, White House Chief of Staff, spoke to Speaker Pelosi. I don't think the call went very well, but um, but the, but initial uh, another <laughs> outreach to essentially say. You know, uh, you know, we would like to do something, uh, and Speaker Pelosi saying like we would like to do something that we're willing to meet you in the middle. And uh, the White House and Republicans are not yet ready to talk about um, uh, the middle. And uh, you know, I would just say like to, to our point, like the, the better the better arrive at something sooner, you know, sooner than later, because um, you know I think you know the the you know, not getting. $600 checks uh, in the mail um, is, um, uh, you know, for, for all the, all the, the, the households who were getting it, 
um, you're going to start seeing that impact. Not getting the $1,200 check that everybody, every, every you know, everybody who made a projection on what growth was going to look like in the third quarter anticipated that there was going to be another round of $1,200 checks going to households. It's not there yet, and we don't know when or if ever it's going to come. Yeah, you've said in the past that you think we've we've been on your side. We've thought that there would be a deal eventually, whether maybe it was after the Republican National Convention or you know sort of the 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 lull around Labor Day, yeah. sneak something in there. And and I do think so. Look, I, I still I, I mean I don't think it'll be Labor Day. I think it'll be well after Labor Day. I think it'll be closer to the end of the month. But um, but I think yeah. they um, uh, and I do I do think they're gonna they're gonna get there. I think it's gonna be a uh, a slow dance. Uh, you know, to, yeah. uh, to, uh, to get there. And I do think they're going to get there because, because they do have still at the end of the month, they need to do a budget. Uh, right. you know, and, and, yeah. and so there are a lot of things that are coming together. that are going to allow them to, you know, free up and do some things. I'm just saying that the political clock um, might not be well-timed with the economic clock. So I think there is like a view by some that like, well, we can't come to agreement right now uh, because we're still in the name calling and blame stage of this dance. Uh, and the economy saying, uh, guys, you know, like people are going to stop shopping. You know, how does that look like when you get to November? And, you know, and I think like they're talking, you know, they're talking past themselves right now. I do think, as I said, I think it will become apparent, you know, by the second or third week of September that they're, uh, that they might be late. You know, I think they're going to be, you know, they're probably going to be late if they wait that long, but that's sometimes. And what yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but if they're, if it takes that long, those stimulus checks might not reach households before election day. Yeah. Well, even if they do. It takes a while. Yeah. And it, but even if they do, the damage might be done already. Well, let's, let's get into that. We had, uh, you know, we had like, you know, two epic weeks of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Republican and Democratic uh, conventions like we've never seen before. And I suspect we'll never see them again. Uh, like this, um, I you know I think they're going to be more in person uh, four years from now. At least I, God, I hope so uh, for other people who like to go to those things. Uh, but let's come back uh, after the break and get into it with uh, Brian DeAngelis and Michael Steele and uh, and talk politics. You're listening to the Macrocast. Markets Policy Partners provides sophisticated financial market analysis that is independent, accessible, and actionable for a broad audience. Learn more at marketspolicy.com or visit them on Twitter at marketspolicy. Back on the macrocast, uh, you know, last week uh, we talked about the, uh, the the Democratic National Convention, virtual convention. This week we had the Republican, mostly virtual, partially in-person, uh, maskless, on you know, no no socially distanced um, convention, Michael Steele. What was what was your take on the Republican convention this week? Well, I think that what you're seeing from both parties is a very clear bet on the biggest issue in this election, which is the COVID nineteen pandemic and the response to it. Democrats are betting on science. They're betting on you know masks and social distancing and virtual events. And Republicans are very much trying to pretend the pandemic is a thing of the past. Every narrative used past tense talking about the pandemic. It was all about how we get back to the booming economy that we had before this pandemic without a real plan to end the pandemic itself. And at a time when 1,000 to 1,200 Americans are dying from COVID-19 on any given day, that's macabre and grotesque. But there's also some indications this week that 
it may be a winning bet. You know, seven-day rolling average of new infections is down. The government's decision to purchase in massive quantities the Abbott uh, rapid test for COVID is a great first step, which should have happened a long time ago, but is a smart thing to do. Uh, and we're seeing this fascinating study on uh, detecting COVID infection in wastewater out of the University of Arizona, all of which could be all of which could be indicating we may be in a better position vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic and reopening the economy by November 3rd than we expected. Yeah, I think could be is the key words there. I mean, I, I think about what Trump has done the last eight months and he doesn't have much credibility left on this. If he was running a campaign about falling cases and Abbott tests and a vaccine coming and, and we could trust him Republicans could trust him to be that disciplined. I'd be a little nervous as a Democrat, but but instead you saw sort of an alternate reality last night. Um, the optics alone stuck out to me as, you know, Trump's having uh, 2,000 people in the front lawn of the White House, no social distancing. I saw a couple masks as most of us are at home and we can't go to a restaurant. Our kids can't go to school. We have to wear a mask everywhere we go. So. I think there's a big disconnect between what, what Trump's living and what people are living, and we'll see how that plays out the next few months. I think it's, it's an important point. I mean, look, I, I think overall, like if you ask the Republicans, um, you know, what you want out of this convention, uh, you know, what are the marks? You have to, I think they hit every mark that they wanted to hit. I really do. I think they, yep. their goal is to energize debate. Look, I think the Democratic convention was, try, you know, it was a strategy of they feel like their base is sufficiently energized that they can then go, you know, try to welcome the center and even Republicans uh, to come on board. And so you saw that like very direct effort. This was very much a debate uh, or a, 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 a drive to, uh, to turn out the base uh, in, uh, in the Republican party and in even in particular states. There was a lot of niche issues. We're talking about, uh, you know, lobsters and Wisconsin dairy farmers, right? It was like, you know, pro-life, like, like they hit their marks on the narrow audiences that they're trying to reach. They got to do the thing that only a president gets to do, which used to be done much more with a lot more subtlety, which is to look presidential. Um, they, they kind of like, there's no subtlety with this administration. So they got rid of the subtlety and just went, you know, full blown, Low torch, you know, light up the South Lawn with giant Trump Pence signs. But you got to do the grand entrance on the red carpet to the balcony with the crowd there. And 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 to your point, uh, Brian, like so, I think they hit all their marks. But like that was kind of a you know, it was a Potemkin village yesterday, right? I mean, like all these you know people looking like pre-COVID, you know, like a pre-COVID right. environment, and. You know, no masks, no distancing, applause and cheering and president in person talking to people. And it looked fantastic. But at the same time, everybody's got to get had to get up this morning and, you know, put on their masks and not go to the office and not go to school and not go to the right. baseball game and, you know, wonder about what's going on with uh, their business. So it's sort of like a back to reality this way. And I don't, I don't know how people are going to. Uh, you know, interpret what they saw last night, but it might not matter for most people if their base said, yeah, that was amazing. And that's what we're in for. Yeah. Not to mention they had to walk off that South Lawn into a protest. And if you're watching this on any news channel last night, you're, you're seeing a, a South Lawn of, of 
people celebrating the president cut right to civil unrest throughout the country. So there's Is civil there's unrest a, hurting or hoping, or helping, Brian. I mean, like, I mean, I think, you know, they're, they're obviously trying to use civil unrest as a, uh, you know, scare tactic with, you know, suburban voters. They are. And this is where I think they're, they're confused. I mean, this felt like a spaghetti on the wall convention. They, they can't decide if Biden was the criminal justice reformer that, that caused a lot of um, mass incarceration, mass incarceration, or is he soft on crime that's leaving the civil unrest in um, states? And, And they want to run on this as if this is Joe Biden's America, but you know, power of incumbency, you own the last four years. This is Trump's America we're living in. But, and I think there's, there's a huge irony in the, you know, the president who promised to end quote unquote American carnage presiding over so much of it. At the same time, there remains that sort of Teflon outsider feel to the president. It will work for him in a way that it wouldn't work for many other politicians because he's not a politician. Uh, I also think that there was, it was very smart, um, that they featured so many African-American men prominently. And that was not obviously a, an accident. Um, part of that is trying to make college-educated suburbanites who are concerned about the president's racial rhetoric feel a little more comfortable. Um, but I think it's also probably uh, trying to dampen turnout among African-American men, particularly in those crucial Midwestern states in North Carolina, Georgia, um, African-American women are much more reliable voters than African-American men. I'm not saying they're going to vote for Trump, but you could really kind of take the edge off some of that turnout. Uh, and I think that's probably what they were deliberately trying to do. And I think the president's campaign over the next few weeks will be telling on that. This convention, I will say, did a great job of trying to soften the rough edges. You saw yep. that in Ivanka's speech and Pence's speech, Melania's speech. But you know, we've seen this attempt before and then Trump goes back to being Trump. So can he stay disciplined? Can they still carry that message beyond, you know, the end of August at a convention throughout the, what, when people really turn in after Labor Day? Yeah, they also had this, uh, they also had this uh, quality of, you know, uh, but, you know, I don't know how many speakers went up and said, I wish you could see you know, the person right. that, I know. Yeah. that I yeah. see back on these rooms that you don't get to see because we, we know, wink, wink, we know the, the, the man that you see in public and on Twitter that's different from the person that we see. And so, well, you know, and of course the question everybody has is, well, why don't we see that person in public? <laughs> right. Why does it, it's not because we're not looking, we can't avoid them. You know, why don't we get to see that? And that's only one person's fault. If it is, if it's real. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think that's also why you saw so many stories from, you know, quote unquote, real people across the country that, you know, trying to show the impact of policies, particularly pre-COVID, or even in response to the pandemic, when they were talking to the, uh, the woman who got a PPP loan, you know, they're trying to make the case for the positive impact of his policies. And I think part of the reason for that is they don't have a coherent second term agenda. So they're kind of all they keep coming back to is more of the same. We're going to get back to where we were in January. Um, and that's the, the great American comeback uh, is, you know, is the closest they can come to a coherent narrative for the second term, right? You know, the, everyone says that it's a, it's a job interview. The campaign is a job interview. You're supposed to tell the American people what they get if they vote for you in November. And the best they can come up with is we'll get back to the great economy we had earlier this year. 
Yeah, and you uh, all mentioned this last week, but it, I think it's never been more true. These were two conventions of personality. This was not about policy. This was, you know, Biden as the friendly, comfortable leader in a time of crisis. And this was, you know, Trump trying to show, again, those either softer edges. You don't know the guy we see behind the scenes and a little bit of what he's done, but very little policy on both sides. Yeah. One of the things that I, uh, I mean, like, it's easy to be cynical about um, political conventions, and I'm very cynical about political conventions, or you know, State of the Union addresses, like, you, you know, usually like my, my favorite part about State of the Union addresses is like you wade through all of these like standing, sitting, applause, don't, don't applause, whatever, to get the stories of the people in the gallery, you know, because regardless of political party, they're always amazing stories, you know, amazing personal stories about um, uh, some Americans that either have accomplished greatness or dealt with tragedy in, uh, uh, in very, um, you know, strong ways or, uh, you know, overcome things. And we get a little bit of that at political conventions too. And I thought, you know, some of the, the personal stories uh, that you get, you know, last week, the story of, of, um, of Trump with, uh, I'm not Trump, but uh, Biden uh, helping the young man um, uh, with, yeah, sure, yeah. with stuttering, right? And, um, you know, the story is you know, very powerful uh, personal story last night of the parents of the young American woman uh, who was, you know, taken hostage in Syria. Um, um, you know, these stories are, you know, you don't get to hear them uh, every day. It's worth, the, it's worth, you know, your time on the couch watching them just to hear people talk in personal ways about the things that they've, um, they've dealt with. And um, you get that perspective. I Go agree. On. I think some of that storytelling is, is here to stay. I was also impressed. I'm curious what you all think. Um, some of the ability to do multiple locations, I thought, could be here to stay. You know, you, you always are going to have your central convention spot, I think. But going out to some of the candidates in their home districts, going out to different parts of the country that represent a message, whether you agree with it or not, that the campaign's trying to portray, I thought was powerful TV these past two weeks. And we could see that again in the future. Yeah, why not, right? I mean, I do think that's, I, that is one of the things that... Um, uh, that is that is definitely a a terrific development. At, you know, using technology, the technology mostly existed to do that stuff in the past. It's just there was you know just never occurred to anybody to do it. You were more or less you know celebrating the host city, um, and so uh, and so it was really you know frequently about the neighborhood around the city and region and that that sort of thing. But why not use all the technology? And then Steele and I like debated a little bit uh, on this question of whether. You know, we're going to see in the future uh, presidents of either party, um, you know, use the White House itself as a tool, uh, as a communications tool in the way that the, the, the Trump uh, White House has done, you know, did yesterday and, uh, and presumably will do for the rest of the, uh, the campaign. There's no reason why they shouldn't at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're a long way from everyone being outraged at Dan Rather saying, this is Dan Rather reporting from the Nixon campaign at the White House, which was a huge deal in 1972 when, you know, he was snarky about the president using... Or, the, or even, Al, you know, the, the outrage at Al Gore using a campaign phone while he was in the residence. You know, was right, like, oh. right. I mean, this, right. I, just, I just think norms once violated tend not to reestablish themselves and the advantages of using the White House as a campaign backdrop to take the most egregious example 
the advantages are so great that future presidents will be unable to resist availing themselves of them. I think that if former Vice President Biden wins in November, he may show more restraint than certainly President Trump will if he's reelected or uh, or presidents will in the future. But I just don't think you get back to respecting that tradition once it's been violated. Yeah, unfortunately for that tradition, I completely agree with Steele. I think once you break that boundary, the next person may go back a little bit, but they don't go back to where they should go back and it always keeps moving down the line. I, I, will, I will take the other side of that. I still think that, um, I think there are a lot of, there was a lot of norm busting that, uh, that Trump has done in his first term. Uh, you know, the, the frequent, you know, uh, walk by the, you know, the camera sticks and do, you know, doing mm-hmm. impromptu media, I think will be a feature uh, that future presidents do. They will see the advantage of it. You know, using social media in a personal way is that that it will be a norm busted. You'll see a lot more of uh, of that in the future. I do think, though, on the kinds of things that were, um, you know, whether like you know work, you know, how people work in the White House, um, the the you know separation of uh, you know personal business and uh, official work you know, partisan politics and official work, I think we're going to get more Puritan on that and revert back. I think there's going to be, if, let's say, if there is a Biden presidency, I fully expect to see proclamations that those things that happened in the Trump administration, we consider them, you know, bad and inappropriate, and we are explicitly not going to do it and lay down, um, you know, uh, rules on engagement in the, um, uh, uh, on, a, on a whole range of things, including things like, you know, like, you know, family working for the administration, you know, things like, you know, tax records and lots of other things. I think are, they're going to be very, you know, very um, strong statements about, you know, conduct uh, in and around the White House. Well, and one of the things that I think I've written this and rewritten it six times and need to get it published at some point, but I think one of the smartest things that Joe Biden could do right now is give a speech that admits some of the failures and self-dealing on the part of his surviving son and pledge very specific reforms in the future that a Biden administration would follow in order to avoid such self-dealing or the appearance of self-dealing in the future. And I think it would be hard and it would be awful for him. And I understand why he doesn't want to do it, particularly when he seems to be ahead in the polls. But if I were that campaign, hanging a lantern on that problem, pivoting it pivoting it into something positive uh, and kind of taking that, that weapon out of the president's arsenal is a really smart thing to do. Guys, thanks for joining us. You know, like I feel like we could, um, we could do, you know, and maybe we should do a tire, you know, entire show in this, but you know, what we could do is, is come back. um, I think we're, are we one month away from the first debate? I think roughly. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Let's come back. Let's come back for debate week and, um, and, and see how they did. And, uh, hopefully we'll have, you know, some good, uh, we could talk you know, a little bit more, less, less about presentation, a little more about, um, you know, the substance of the policy that comes up at that time. And we'll a little bit know a little bit more about what the economy is looking like and uh, how voters feel about it. So thanks for, uh, th- thanks for coming on the macro cast for convention, thanks for having us. convention week. Appreciate it. Uh, John, we'll come right back and take a look at uh, what econ news we have next week. You're listening to the HBS macro cast. 
From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. You're listening to the HPS Macrocast. Every Friday, we take a look at the major economic trends of the week. See more from Hamilton Place Strategies at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or on Twitter at HPS Insight. Hamilton Place Strategies is an analytical public affairs firm based in Washington, D.C. Learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight. On the first Friday of every month, HPS analyzes the latest jobs and labor market data in a digestible format. Sign up for our reports at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or on Twitter at HPS Insight. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. The South by Southwest panel picker is live this week, and there are some great panels on the list. Check out our favorites on Twitter at HPS Insight and be sure to vote. And we're back on the Macrocast. Um, John, that was fun. I, I didn't let you get a word in edgewise, but we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk politics more. What do we have? What economics we have next week? We have drum roll. It's August, August jobs, non-farm payrolls. It's jobs Friday. And uh, that it's going to be a consequential one. No question about it. We've had, uh, you know, some upside surprises, uh, there was some concern that the resurgence of COVID in July in various hotspots around the country might be seen in non-farm payrolls, like it's being seen in initial jobless claims. Uh, although that that has uh, we, we got a little bit of a better reading this uh, this past week. The expectation is for non-farm payrolls in August to still look very strong, 1.5 million roughly new jobs added is the estimate, and you know, place your bets. This is uh, this is going to be a big number. We're going to see some other data for August coming in. Uh, obviously, the next initial jobless claims for the uh, for for this week, uh, and uh, we're going to be looking at the uh, you know purchasing managers indexes, uh, a couple of different ones uh, to to give us some more data points on August uh, levels of activity. So uh, it it'll be a consequential week, uh, taking us into Labor Day weekend. Uh, and we'll have our uh, we'll have our colleague uh, Matt McDonald with us next week for um, uh, for some good you know jobs day. Uh, we'll dive right in right into it. But um, uh, John, thanks, great show. We'll be back at it next week. I'll have Brendan with us too. Hope he's you know travel safely, and uh, we'll uh, we'll have him back with us next week on the Macrocast. Have a terrific weekend. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. Find more from Hamilton Place Strategies at hamiltonplacestrategies.com and follow Tony Fratto on Twitter at Tony Fratto. Learn more about John Fagan, Brendan Walsh, and the work they do at Markets Policy Partners by visiting marketspolicy.com.